All right. Good evening, everyone. Um, so I, so I, I, let me apologize for those coming here for the first time. So what happened is we had church this morning. And because people, uh, some of the church members wanted to attend this event, they didn't go home. Now, they went somewhere where they took some beverages. I don't know what those beverages are, but it seems to be coming out. So please, um, please, uh, I, sh I want to extend a warm welcome to, especially if, if you are here, you're not a Christian, and you've come to listen to this. We really appreciate you uh, here. And uh, most especially, I want to extend welcome to all the Ijebu members that are in this place. Um, Obina, you're not, you're not, you're not even Yoruba, you're not, what, what are you doing? All right, my name is Femi, as, as we said, and um, thank you, thank you for coming. Uh, LQC, Lagos Questions Christianity, is uh, this event that we put up really to say, look, there are many voices in this city, this city is a diverse city, there are voices um, ethnically, but there are also voices in terms of, different voices in terms of religion, or no religion at all. And we feel like, you know, rather than just being in our silos, it's important for us to at least engage. And not just engage at work and all of those things. We all have deeply held beliefs. And sometimes it's good to speak about those places where we differ. Now, it's important that if we're going to have a good conversation about it, that at least we try to respect each other. So here we want to tackle some of the objections towards Christianity, but hopefully in a, in a respectful manner that actually listens to, to what um, you, are, you, are, you are dealing with. So this year, we're dealing with the specific question of, is Christianity the only way to God? Now, as mentioned in the introduction, um, I was born and raised in Lagos. I love Lagos, even though I had a brief stint outside. And one of the things I love about Lagos, you know, um, is, I mean, let's be honest, Lagos doesn't have uh, a lot of uh, tourist attractions, and no matter what, you know. Um, we, don't, we only have one symbol. It's no longer the National Theatre. It's now the Ikoileki Bridge. Um, everybody's used it. In fact, that thing, they should take a copyright on it. I, you know. One thing we do have is our people. We've got loads of people, 20 plus million people. And the thing about having that number of people is that you have a lot of diverse people. You know, just looking here, even though some people will say this is Yoruba land, well, you know, no offense taken, but you have all manner of ethnicities here. Lagos, in many ways, people say, is no one's land. Um, the diversity that we have brings a lot of richness, it brings a lot of wealth, it brings a lot of innovation, it brings a lot of colors, it brings a lot of food. And so we all benefit from this diversity. And so some of us will be asking, if diversity is always good, why not have that diversity also expressed in religion? That is. If, you, if we can say, look, Eba doesn't only satisfy me, Panadiyam satisfies me, some other time I take rice, why can't you just say that there's a God, but there are different ways to get to him? You see, I want to be frank with you from the very get-go. Um, Christianity says something about um, its own claim to being a means to God. Here's what our founder, Jesus, says. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, anyone who claims to be a Christian and says the Christian faith embraces multiple ways to God is speaking on their own behalf. Because what Jesus says here, he not only gives you a positive statement, that is, I am the way, then he ends it with saying, no one, he, he, uh, he basically kills the exception clause. No one comes to the Father except through me. So 
you know, let's be honest about what the faith claims. Now, for some of us, this is the big hindrance. Because you may be saying something like, is it my force to become a Christian? What about my, as Taiwo said, my Muslim neighbor? I worked with a wonderful Muslim man uh, a couple of years ago. Or what about my secular best friend? You see, to be honest, with all due respect, I find this view very intolerant, backward, and offensive. This position of exclusivity is such an arrogant position to take. Now, let me say I hear you. I, obviously, I disagree with you. But I hear you. I believe what you just said. There are genuine concerns. So my aim this evening is to try to address those concerns as best as I can, and perhaps make you see that Christianity has good reasons to make such claims. I hope you'll be very attentive to that. So in this talk, I won't tackle three objections, common objections, I would say, that emerge from this reasoning. That is, why you believe um, that saying one way to God is actually a very abhorrent uh, thing to believe. So three things I want to tackle. And after that, hopefully give you a short presentation of what the Christian faith actually says. So one is, one of uh, the three things are, I believe all religions have a part of the whole. I believe all religions have a part of the whole. The second is, I believe all religions are fundamentally the same, but peripherally different. I believe all religions are fundamentally the same, but peripherally different. And the third is, I believe all religions have value, but we cannot tell which one is true. I believe all religions have value, but we cannot tell which one is true. And I said I'll end with uh, make it, uh, maybe presenting a little bit about the Christian central claim. Now, um, in this church, my title, the ti unfortunate title for me is lead pastor. Left to me, I will have, I would, I would rather people call me another, uh, by another title. And it's basically the, what I would call the CSTO. What was CSTO? The Chief Storyteller Officer. You know, you always have to put, I couldn't say CST. You have to put O there. O just makes, or, you know, CFO, CTO. All right, because I love, all right, okay, fine, that didn't work. All right, but I love stories. I love stories. I like to tell stories. I like to invent stories. None of them have been published. Some of them will never be published. But also, you can get stories from different cultures. So let me tell you one. It's about five blind men, an elephant, and a rajah. It comes from India, from the Indian subcontinent. Now, this is a modified version of it. But listen, five blind men, five blind men came to an elephant and tried to figure out what it was. The first blind man put out his hand and touched the side of the elephant. How smooth. An elephant is like a wall. The second blind man put out his hand and touched the trunk of the elephant. And he said, how round. An elephant is like a snake. The third blind man put out his hand and touched the tusk of the elephant. How sharp. An elephant is like a spear. The fourth blind man put out his hand and touched the leg of the elephant. How tall. An elephant is like a tree. And the fifth blind man put out his hand and touched the tail of the elephant. How thin. An elephant is like a rope. An argument ensued, each blind man thinking his own perception of the elephant was the correct one. The Raja, that's the king, awakened by the commotion, called out from the balcony. The elephant is a big animal, he said. Each man touched only one part. You must put all the parts together to find out what an elephant is really like. Enlightened by the Raja's wisdom, the blind men reached an agreement. 
Each one of us knows only a part. To find out the whole truth, we must put all parts together. So let me talk about the first uh, thing. You see, this story, I think I, I, there are many things that I think it teaches. Like if you are working on a team at work, you know, many times we have to have collaborative efforts and someone comes with um, some parts, you know, uh, of one side, another person comes to another side, and when we are patient one another, we are able to get, you know, a way forward that is better than each person going on their own. But applied to religion, here's what this story is teaching. It's saying that it is arrogant to say, or any religion, or any person of any religion, to say that you have the truth. All the religions and non-religions have like the blind man, one side of the truth. It's like Maria von Trapp's son. Climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow until you find your dream. Some may take the mountain. Some may take the street. Some may take the rainbow, as long as we find our dream, you see? I mean, even the rhyme in itself should tell you that that is the right view. <laughs> now, so what it's saying is if you hold to the... Now, I should say this, if you hold to the view that, um, about religions that um, all religions have one part, let me say this, you are in very good company, right? If you believe that all religions have one part of the truth, you are in very good company. So take, for instance, Mahatma Gandhi. Here's what he said. The various religions are like different roads converging on the same point. What difference does it make if we follow different routes provided we arrive at the same destination. So you see, this view, this enlightened view, is, or would seem, quite tolerant and humble because it doesn't dismiss anyone's view, but rather it inclusively accommodates everyone. Quite tolerant, quite humble. Or is it? Let me ask a question. From whose vantage point do you think this story is written? The blind man? Winston Churchill said that history is always written by its victors. Can I paraphrase that? Stories are always written by the enlightened ones. Right? Who is, from whose vantage point is it written from? Well, it's written from the vantage point, actually, of the king, the raja, and the courtiers. How do we know that? They are the ones that see the elephant. We're told that there's an elephant there, but the blind men cannot be the ones that's, that are telling this story because it has to be someone that can see, that knows that there is an elephant and what the elephant is. In other words, they are the ones that are not blind. If the blind men represent different religions, then the person, the Raja, the king, is representing, or the, the storyteller, is saying that all religions are blind but they are the ones with the true enlightened religion. Now, by that standard, by their own standards, that is, if you say that it's arrogant to say that we have the truth, by their own standards, this is a very, very arrogant assertion. You see, by saying no religion has the ultimate view on truth, but that all religions have one part of it, you yourself are making up another religion. It's just as the famous Irish poet said, George Bernard Shaw said this. 
And he was more honest. He said, there is only one religion, though there are a hundred versions of it. I mean, let's, it's, it's good to be honest, right? If you say that there's an elephant, there's only one person that can see the elephant. The blind men, in other words, all the other religions are blind, but you who see that all the religions have some part of it, guess who is the person that is enlightened? And guess who is the person that is darkness? That is a very arrogant statement by your own standard. But there's even something else to say about it. It's a very exclusive view as well. That is, it is saying that for the people who say that there is no one way, that they're all, all these different parts you know, give you one part, they're essentially saying that there is one path. It is the one path that includes every other path. I'll say that again. It is exclusive only to those who agree that all religions must be inclusive of other religions. If you believe that only one religion has the way to God, they would exclude you. In other words, this very, very inclusive view ends up being a very exclusive view. Or let me put it this way. Imagine we set up a Yoruba students group to promote the Yoruba language and culture in a multi-ethnic uh, campus like Unilag. And then someone on the exco says, because their father is Yoruba, but their mom is Igbo, that their own um, uh, sole purpose on being on that exco is to promote the Igbo language and culture. Will the other people on the exco say, uh, you are welcome here? In the same way, if we say that we are setting up a panel to say, we want all this religion is just dividing the whole world, all these different religions, can't they all just see that they are all one of the same path? Let us be all inclusive. And so they set up that panel about this all-inclusive, you know, enlightened view. And then someone comes on that panel and says, all right, can you include me? I don't believe that all religions are I just believe one religion has the way. They say, oh, sorry, we can't include you. I thought you were inclusive. At the end of the day, even that which claims to be very inclusive, by its own standards, is not only arrogant, but it ends up being exclusive as well. Now, obviously, we don't, I don't have a problem with that. All I'll just say is, can you just be honest about that position? And this doesn't say that you are not tolerant. Because tolerant doesn't mean that I have to agree with everything that everybody says. That would be absurd because everybody, in some ways, contradicts every other person. Tolerance really is that I respect persons, or I respect people. I allow for the expression of their view. I even meaningfully engage with it especially when I disagree with it. That is, I don't come and say, because you hold that view, you are such a stupid person. I should tolerate the person's view, tolerate the person's right to express that view. That's what tolerance is. But if you say tolerance is, no, you mustn't just agree that the person is a good person. You must also agree with the person's view. That's actually an absurdity. Let me go to the second one. I believe all religions are fundamentally the same, but they are peripherally different. That is, and this is closely related to the last one, 
when someone says, the reason I don't I like discriminating among the religions is that they are all really the same at a fundamental level. That if you look at it at the core, they're all really the same. They all believe in doing good to others as you will have them do to you. They believe in helping you develop your character. They believe in helping you deal with trauma and suffering. They just have different ways of expressing it. If I may paraphrase uh, a one-time uh, very famous broadcaster here. I don't know how many of us have heard the name Fumiyoda. Have you ever heard? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Fumiyoda, uh, I, I think two years ago, said something. I'm just paraphrasing now. She says, religion is basically a philosophy that helps you to deal with the issues of life. It can be expressed in an organized faith or not. Where it becomes a problem is when people emphasize something else apart from the core that's contained in the definition she just gave. That is, it is a way of thinking. It's a worldview, religion. Whatever a religion is, it's just a way of thinking that helps. Look, some of us have gone through very deep difficulty in our lives. Maybe your business has just folded up. Maybe you lost a loved one. And it's never enough for people to just say, or as Christians we say, it is well. Right? It's the worst thing to say when somebody has lost a loved one. Don't say it again, OK? But many people say, I need to see something higher to be able to help me hold on to this reality. And what Fumiyanda is saying is that whether your higher thing is God in the Christian way, is God in the Islamic way, it's art, it's whatever. Whatever enables you to deal with the issues of life, that is what religion is. Ah. But I think this is to misunderstand both religion and philosophy. Now, remember that the blind men, right? Um, when the blind man, the one, the fifth blind man, he held the tail. What did he call it? It said like a rope. Is a tail a rope? Uh, no, no, OK. If you think a tail is a rope, some of you that have dogs, right? The next time you have a dog, why don't you take the tail and use it to tie something? And then come back and report to us what happened to you. What we're saying is this. When the blind men, whatever view they had, whatever, because they did have, they did touch the elephant, didn't they? Whatever view, spot view they had of the elephant, ended up, because it was part, it ended up being a distorted view of it. A rope is not a tail. A trunk is not a snake. A, an, um, a uh, what do you call it? A tusk is not what? What people, in order to maintain peace among religions, when you say, I want to maintain peace among these religions, what you end up doing is that you don't show those religions respect. You don't take them seriously. Why? Because you end up significantly redefining what they mean. When you say that all religions are just there to help you deal with the issues of life, how many of the people in those religions have you consulted who have really studied it to say, is that what they actually mean by that? But in a way to say, well, I'm just trying to show you that no, all of you are the same. But you have to then redefine, in an arrogant way, redefine for us what we mean. So this view about it being um, uh, uh, peripheral, uh, that all religions are different peripherally, and they are the same fundamentally, it reminds me of, um, I don't know about you, but growing up, um, uh, I don't know whether it's still a practice, 
When I was growing up, you knew what you ate on Saturday and Sunday. What did you eat on Sunday afternoon? What kind of rice? Jollof rice. If you have fried rice, sorry, you are too poor. All right? And yes, chicken, but sometimes fish, right? Stewed fish. What did you eat on Saturday morning? Huh? I can't hear. Somebody, somebody said pap. Somebody said pap. What's that? What's pap? There's no such thing as pap. It's called ogi. That's the first thing. It's called ogi. It's, there's no akamu. It's ogi. All of these things are modifications of it. Can we be serious? So let's just take it. Ogi. Now, ogi was Monday, was Saturday morning. But you know, ogi, if you took ogi on your own, okay, let me, let's, we are inclusive. If you took pap on your own, all right? Some people are looking strange. All right, inclusivity, okay. All right, if you took pap on your own, then you knew times were hard. Because pap was not meant to be taken on its own. Let's be honest. Let's just call it spade a spade. Pap was made, it, was, it had a twin. What's that twin? Or what? You see, so it was Ogi and Akara Ogi. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, what's that? That's Akara. What's the next one there? Oh, my word. Now, I want to tell you something about this. But after this one, there's something else. I want you to show me what that is. Who knows what that is? Now, can I ask you a question? Let me ask you a question. Now, Eko, Eko, was, Eko is made of, um, of corn, right? Corn. And you know, you put it in this uh, leaf uh, away. Now, nowadays everybody is modern. Yeah, you do, if you want to do moi moi now, you have all these things, and you know it has removed some of the. Yeah. Now, think about it. Think about it. Moi moi and echo are done the same way, in some ways. Like the leaves, right? The leaf, they're put in the leaf, they come out the same shape, isn't it? Right? And. How do you make akara and moi moi? How, how, how are they made? They're made from. Let me ask you a question. I actually think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that moi moi and echo are fundamentally the same. They're just peripherally different. And moi moi and akara are fundamentally different. They are peripherally the same. How many agree with that? Olumide, well, you are in, yeah, well, Olumide against the world. <laughs> now, here's the point. Moimo has similarities with Akara. Moimo has similarities with Echo. But one of them is fundamental, and the other one is peripheral. The one that is fundamental is Akara, because what? They come from the same raw material, isn't it? Whereas with Echo, it is peripheral because they use, in some ways, the same cooking means. Quite often, when people say that all religions are the same, they are just peripherally different, what they are basically telling you is that moi moi and echo are pretty much the same thing. Because essentially, let me tell you some of the so-called peripheral differences that religions differ on, so-called. The nature of ultimate reality. By ultimate reality, I mean whether you think the universe is ultimate reality, whether you think A, one God is the ultimate reality, whether you think no God is the ultimate reality, so no God is atheism, one God is monotheism, or many gods, polytheism. We just defined that, but we're all the same. How about the nature of the of human problem, the ultimate human problem? 
If you're a Hindu, you say it's samsara. Samsara basically is the endless cycle of human life. If you're a Christian, you say it is something called sin. But we differ on that. But we are essentially the same. Or the ultimate human solution and the nature of the afterlife. If you're a Hindu, you will, it is it's something called moksha, which breaks you out of this endless cycle of life, or Buddhism, where it's called nirvana. If you are a Muslim, you will say it is heaven or hell. And if you're a Christian, you will say it is new creation or hell. And if you are an atheist, secular material atheist, you say it is death and inexistence. But, you know, at the end of the day, we are all the same. Really, can we be grown-ups? You see, most people say they are the same because they answer many of the same questions. That is, you have to define the question of meaning. You have to define what morality is. You have to deal with suffering. The fact that they answer the same questions does not make them essentially or fundamentally the same. They answer the same questions, but, uh, the same questions, but they give different answers. It is the answers that determine whether they are fundamentally the same or not. The questions show their peripheral unity. Do we understand that? It is the answers that they give that help them to define what morality is, what meaning is, and how to deal with suffering. And many of these religions go in different ways, including secular atheism. They too have to answer that. The truth is, rather than saying they are, they are the same fundamentally and peripherally different, religions are peripherally the same and fundamentally different. And respecting them requires admitting this fact. Third, I believe all religions have value, but we cannot tell which one is true. Some of me say, come on, you're only a Christian because you were born in the country you were born in and to the parents that you have. If you were born in Europe, you will most likely be non-religious. If you were born in the Middle East, you will most likely be a Muslim. As a result, you cannot say one religion trumps the others in terms of truth. Your chosen religion is more due to birth and culture. Thus, we cannot say if there is a true religion. We should be agnostic about that and learn to tolerate and live with each other in peace and harmony because all religions are important to individual well-being and societal development. By agnostic, we mean saying we don't really know. I can't say or I cannot say. Since we are formed by our culture, our parents, our upbringing and all of that, then we can't really say. We can just say, this is how you see truth and this is how I see truth. So whereas in the first argument, the person was saying, I know that the religions aren't true because they only have parts of the truth. Here in this argument, you're saying we cannot know if one is true or the other, except we can say that they are all beneficial in one way. Now, so the argument here is that ultimate reality bends to cultural norms. That is, we can't say there is an ultimate reality. We can just say, in this culture, this is what they believe. In that culture, this is what they believe. This is, if some of us have been interested in this, this is what we, basically the, the main thought of what we call postmodernism. That there isn't any one big truth. We all have our different truths, and it's important for the sake of diversity to learn and to tolerate one another. 
Now, before I just make two points on that, this map actually has something to say about that. I won't make too much of it, but on this map, this is in 2012 um, by some guys called Peer Research um, um, uh, uh, Forum. Now, this map shows you the map of the world, and it shows you the different religions. So the green are Muslims. The, uh, this um, brown, light brown, is Hindus. Dark brown is Buddhist. So you can see the Buddhist uh, somewhere around here, Nepal and what you have, what have you. You can see the Hindus are largely in India, a little bit in Mongolia. And then you can see Muslims largely in North Africa and the Middle East and a bit of South Asia. But and Jews, are, Jews are somewhere here. Israel is there. Well, you, largely, that, that, uh, that fits with the sociological argument that your culture, your geography, can determine your religion, right? Isn't it? The red is Christians. The light red is Christians. What continent? Well, they're in North America. They're in South America. They're in Europe, West Europe. They're in Eastern Europe. They're in Sub-Saharan Africa. They're in Australia. They're all around the world. In other words, I'm just saying from a Christian standpoint, where other religions have been very, very culturally located, it is not the truth that, at least for Christianity, Christianity has shown a great level of adaptability to many cultures. That's, that's a huge point. Now, but let's say I take that point. Let's say, granted, granted, we take the point that, all right, it's going to be largely uh, determined by where you are born. So you may say to me, uh, Femi, you're a Christian because you were born into a Christian home. And I'll say, yes, most probably yes, I'm a Christian because I was born into a Christian home. But this proves nothing. It proves nothing about whether or not the Christian faith is true. This is an assertion, it's not an argument. What do you mean by that? It's like, Imagine somebody responding to a question as to, let, okay, let me ask you, who is better, Manchester City or, or Barcelona? Barcelona. Uh, come on, now, you guys have it. Some of the people here say, I don't, I, don't, I don't watch football. Just choose, just one of the two. Just guess. Be like my wife. Right? You just, just guess. My wife has supported West Brom, Sunderland. She doesn't I support that one. I support that one. Yeah, yeah. Who is better, Barcelona or Manchester City? Now, imagine I responded to your view, and I said, well, Barcelona are champions of Spain. Manchester City are champions of England. Now, that's my response. I'm like, how does that answer my question? Right? You are saying they are both, of course, thank you for stating the obvious that Barcelona are the champions of Spain. I think they're a Spanish club. Okay, I get that. And Manchester City are the champions of England. I get, well, they're not the former ones. They're the defending ones now. What's your problem? Keep up. <laughs> so Manchester City play in England. They're the champions of England. Yes, my question was, who is better? And you're saying, no, don't bring them up. They're just champions. Of well, first of all, you say, thanks for stating the obvious. And second, have you ever heard of the UEFA Champions League? Right? There's a way we can measure them if they eventually meet. But my thing, what I'm saying is that by you saying that you are a Christian because you were born in a Christian home, 
and you're a Christian because maybe most of the people around your parents took you to church. That's why you're a Christian. That is an assertion. It's not an argument as to whether or not the Christian faith is true or not. Do we understand that? You are just making a statement about the transmission of the faith. You are not making a statement about the veracity of the faith. Besides, maybe we should turn this question around. You say I'm a Christian because of the Christian background and what have you. Since all truth is meant to be culturally located, we can't think about it here. Well, maybe your agnosticism also has something to do with your birth. I mean, at the end of the day, if you say we can't determine, the agnosticism that you take is actually a position. It's an absolute position. And that position is basically saying that we can't really tell because you are going to take what you most likely have. OK, what about the fact that your agnosticism is just based on your reaction against religion because you are read in, an, in, a, a religious, um, in a religious environment? Or are you saying the only way we can know that somebody, someone's faith is actually true is if they reject the faith that they were brought up with. That's the only way we can know. If they reject that faith and maybe go to another faith, that's the only way we can know that um, it's objectively true. It's no longer subjective. And I say, well, if you say that, can you prove that statement? Because that is a very unagnostic statement. You are going with an absolute statement that you cannot prove philosophically, scientifically, or any other way. In other words, you are just making an assertion. You are not making an argument. And that assertion that you are making, it turns back to you, and it actually takes your argument from under the rug. If everybody's view is made up because of, how, of where they were culturally read in, then even you, your own view, is made up of the culture that you are read in, whether you are agreeing with it or whether you are rejecting it. And so we can't even determine whether what you are saying is true or not. Secondly, ultimate reality, when you say ultimate reality, in our case, God, cannot be known because it always depends on cultural location and preference. Let's consider this example. Imagine you are a Tuareg from Niger Republic, and you went to visit a Bedouin, in, a Bedouin friend in the Arabian Peninsula. And when you guys were in your tents, um, you know, they, were, they served you guys food, you know, they entertained you, and then they were doing some sums. You notice they were doing some sums when it had to do with money. And you notice that when they said two, they said two plus three, part of the sum, that two plus three was equal to five. The Tuareg friend then said to his Bedouin friend, said, wow, so that's how you see it. In our Tuareg culture, two plus three is equal to six. What's the Bedouin friend meant to say? I love diversity. <laughs> I've learned something new today. You guys are so different on your views on numbers and mathematics. But if that's how it works for you, this is also how it works for us. Absolutely not. You know what he's meant to say? He's going to say, bro, I respect your culture. Therefore, with all due respect, I, I didn't even know you sincerely believe it. But you, your culture, your father, your father's father, all your answers, you are all wrong. You know why? Because mathematics at this point transcends cultural preferences. 
You are not going to say, well, that's just the way they see it. We do believe in many spheres that there is ultimate truth. Ultimate truth matters, it exists, and we cannot simply dismiss applying it in religion simply based on an assumption that truth is always culturally located. Now, let me close with a little bit of, let me make a bit of a transition. Let me go back to that story. You know the funny thing about the elephant story is that it actually opens up a window to what we can call revelatory truth. Even though the writers of this story were not actually thinking about that, but it opens up a window to revelatory truth. That is, there's an elephant. There is actually an elephant which can be known. Don't just glance over that. The people were blind, but there is an elephant, and that elephant can be known. Now, let me try to extend this story a little bit, right? And for us Christians, you won't find this ridiculous because we've seen that a donkey can speak. All right, what if the elephant could speak? What if the elephant could speak? And what if it spoke in a way to describe itself, not exhaustively, but truly enough for it to be known to the blind men as an elephant? You see, most religions, or even non-religions, claim some kind of fundamental revelatory knowledge, right? The Hindus will have the Vedas. Um, Muslims will have the Quran. Secular material philosopher, uh, philosophers will claim a specific understanding of science. And Christians, for us, we claim that God has spoken in the Bible. What is the Bible? The Bible not, is not one book. The Bible is a collection of 66 books by 40 different authors over 1,500 years. And wait for it, in all their, write, their writing, it finds remarkable consistency in their ultimate message. 66 books, 40 different authors, 1,500 years. And yet, many of them not consulting with each other, and yet it finds remarkable consistency in its main message. What is that? That God has revealed himself in human form in the person of Jesus Christ as the only means to reconciling alienated creation to himself. Now, I think to back that up, you need three things. I won't say three things that are really important to make that statement uh, credible. One, you need credible authority. Two, you need evidential backup. And then three, you need an emotional appeal, some kind of emotional appeal. Let me start with credible authority. If we say that, we need some credible authority to stand on that. And what I mean by credible authority, I mean this. For instance, if you are an upcoming uh, designer, you know, fashion designer, right? It's one thing for me to say, let me say, like, Nanke, if you're an upcoming fashion designer, it's one thing for me to say, Nanke, man, that your designs are just off the charts. She's just going to say, I'm a pastor, what will I say? <laughs> it's another thing for Nanke to really believe in her heart, really believe in her heart that she's, she's, she's better than anyone. She's the righteousness of God. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. I'm better than Chanel. I'm better than Gucci. I'm better than, believe it if you want. But it's another thing for Maya Tafu to come and say, you are doing very well. 
Whose view do you think she would respect most? Mine. Of course, mine. I was wondering what were the guys talking about. My staff were like, what does he know about fashion? But she would take his view, even if there were 10 of me. She would take his view. Okay, let's not use me because that's conflicting, right? You guys are like, no, I'm sure you really, <laughs> you're an authority on fashion. I am. Olumide, <laughs> get out. She would take my first view much more weightier. Why? Because he's a credible authority on that subject. And Jesus understands that, but for you to, because he makes so many claims. In one, at one point, he was talking with a guy called, a very, very scholastic guy called uh, uh, Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus, well-read. In terms of education, he was, he was, in fact, he had a title called the teacher of Israel, which meant that the whole Bible he would have memorized in his head. And he was saying, making certain claims. Now, Nicodemus, his authority was based on his learning. So Jesus had to trump that authority. You know what Jesus said? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? And here's what he then says after. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. Jesus is saying, I know you must have read under, the, you must have gone to the Harvard of um, the Pharisee, the Pharisee uh, school. What me I'm telling you uh, about what's going to happen is because I came down from heaven. Jesus's, at least his claim to his authority, has to do with his origin. He's saying, I have, my origin is eternal. Even though I'm a hum human being, my origin, my actual origin started from all eternity. Well, that is a huge claim to make. But at least he's basing it on something. So if he says that, the next thing I said is you need some kind of evidential backup. You need to back up your authority. Well, he does so, and because I don't have more time, I won't spend too much time on this, but the main way as Christians that we hang on to what Jesus says, at least for me, why that is true, is he backs it up by rising from the dead after being murdered just as he predicted. Listen to me. The fact of Jesus' resurrection, and I use that word very carefully, the fact, the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection is the ground upon which Christianity stands or falls. If you're a non-Christian here and you can prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead, let me tell you the truth. If you can do that, there should be no Christianity. And I'm not saying that because you're a non-Christian. Do you know who will back you up? Listen to what the Bible says. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Christianity, the Bible itself tells you that there should be no Christianity if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. He's saying, look, the, very found, the, the, the first people to speak about the faith, if, Christian, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, first of all, they are morally um, objectionable because they've been lying. But he also says that, look, this whole thing can't hold together if there is no resurrection from the dead. That's why later he then says, 
but in fact, that means he's speaking historically now, in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. I don't know how many of you have heard of a guy called Chuck Colson, but let me tell you, maybe you'll know about this. In the 1970s, um, after JFK died, the next president after JFK was his vice president, a guy called Lyndon B. Johnson. Lyndon B. Johnson eventually didn't run for re-election um, when he could have because of the Vietnam War. And the person that entered was a guy called Richard Nixon, a Republican. Now, Richard Nixon came in, and he did reasonably well. And then he ran for re-election, and he won. Like, it was a landslide. However, stuff started to emerge about a scandal that was brewing that his, he had authorized some, of, some people to bug, he was a Republican, to bug the Democratic National Convention's headquarters to listen in. And this thing started to emerge, emerge. Eventually, this engulfed his whole, he eventually had to, he was going to be impeached, but he resigned before that. And this has been called the Watergate scandal. Now, there have been, there were a number of people that were involved there, and one of them was a guy called Chuck Colson, a very astute, very smart guy. He was a strategist. He went to prison and eventually became a Christian. And listen to what Chuck Colson said about the resurrection. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it. And Okay, maybe I'll, I'll sorry. So let me say that again. So because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured it if it weren't true. I like isn't that an assertion? How can you say that? And he says this. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You are telling me 12 uneducated apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Before you go ahead and just quickly say, well, you're just saying that because you're a Christian. No, this is how people investigate things. The best way to make, you know, when they, you know when your friend comes to tell you something and says, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Two weeks later, so Taiwo told um, um, Lola that I'm relocating to Australia. Yeah. You are not. <laughs> In three months' time, don't tell anybody. Two weeks later, BA just comes. Ah, Taiwo, <laughs> when are we watching this, your relocation? You know what happened? You know what happened? You know what happened? Taiwo told Lola because uh, uh, Lola is Taiwo's best friend. Yeah? That's what Taiwo thinks. <laughs> Lola has a best friend and is Bumi. So she goes to Bumi and says, I want to tell you something. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> but Bumi's own best friend is Elijah. <laughs> I want to tell you something. Don't tell anybody. Elijah's best friend is Kunle. I want to tell you something. Don't tell anybody. Kunle's best friend is B.A. I want to tell you something. Don't tell anybody. B.A.'s best friend is Taiwo. <laughs> <laughs> Let me 
me tell you something. It is very, very difficult to keep a lie that doesn't only depend on you. These were men who, on the one hand, they didn't even, they were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. They were somewhere else. These were men that were running away when they arrested Jesus. All of a sudden now, they are proclaiming the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. How does that happen? And they were willing to die for it. In fact, 11 of, from history, we are told that 11 of the 12 were martyred for it. Let me tell you something. People, people don't get killed for what they don't believe in. Now, people die for a lot of untruths. Like, some people die for things that, you know, they say, I believe this is what I believe. It's what they believe. That's why they die. No one knowingly dies for what they don't believe. Why? They were not going to get any, any, any material wealth. Most of them died poor. And then they were saying that this thing I believe, it has eternal reward. But if it was a lie, if it was a fabrication, why then die? What benefit does it bring to them? Watergate had 12 of the most powerful men in the world, 12 of the most educated men in the world, 12 of the most carefully thoughtful men in the world. They couldn't keep a secret for three weeks. And they were not taken to the torture. They weren't taken to the, to the lion's den. They weren't taken to, and they all just, it all unraveled. And you're telling me that 12 uneducated fishermen, many of them fishermen, could keep this lie going on for 40 years, even though they believed it wasn't true. There's a guy called Josh McDowell, who was also a skeptic. And Josh McDowell set out to investigate and write a book that will refute Christianity. After he'd done his investigation, here's what he said in the book he eventually released. After more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men. Or it is the most fantastic fact of history. Let me tell you something. If you've not read Jesus, please do. I'm not saying that you believe. What I'm going to say is this. If you read Jesus and what he says, he makes so many bombastic claims. And yet, it not only do you read about in the Bible, but outside. Here's one thing most people are agreed on. You can't say that Jesus, most, in many religions, he's held up as a moral, a, a, some kind of moral leader. In other religions, uh, in other religions, we actually see that he is a historical figure. And most people would not tell you that Jesus Christ was somebody that seemed like he was a bit mad. So here's the point. With all the statements that he made, you are left with four decisions. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, he's a legend, or he's Lord. What do you pick? The one thing you cannot do is to be indifferent. And finally, a bit of an experiential appeal. There are more proofs I can give you about resurrection. If you want an 800-page book that you are really serious about reading, historical analysis, everything, all the first-rate scholarship, I can give it to you. But it's not just the historical fact of it. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's possible for people to look at the historical fact of the resurrection and still not follow Jesus. You know when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Unfortunately, many Christians have looked at that, and we've used it to try to end all discussions. Don't engage with anybody that doesn't believe it. 
Unfortunately, many of them are not even understanding what Jesus is saying. Yes, he is saying that no one goes to the Father but him, through him. But what does he mean that he is the way, the truth, and the life? He wasn't just saying, he wasn't making some arrogant claim that was speaking about following his teachings or his commandments as the way to God. He wasn't saying, here are certain truths you must believe first, and this is what is going to lead you to God. Or here are certain commandments that you must follow. This is what is going to re uh, um, uh, take you to God. There are many religions that are like that. In fact, I would say all religions are like that. They either give you sets of teachings or sets of commandments for you to follow. Here's what Jesus was saying. When he made that statement, he uttered that statement just before his death, just before he was going to die, his crucifixion on the cross and his resurrection. And what he meant was this. His death was the sacrifice for the ultimate human problem of sin and separation from God. His resurrection is the guarantee that not only will you be forgiven if you believe in him, but that you will have the power to live according to his commandments and experience eternal life in the new world with God and him forever. That's the way. He's saying the way through the cross resurrection that I am about to journey through. If you believe in me, that is how you get through to God. I will take you, yes, sometimes Christians do suffer, but essentially we will come through a resurrection just like he had. Eventually, this alienation from God will be, will be done away with in this new world. You see, in another John Lennon song, he said, imagine there was no heaven. Basically, imagine there was no God. Imagine that he was basically looking for a world of peace where all people came together. He said, imagine there was no religion. You see, what Jesus offers us being the way, the truth, and the life, he's saying, you see what John Lennon is offering you? I actually can give it to you, only better. If you look at all the wars that rage, the Bible says that when Jesus is fully established as king, that people will learn war no more. All the bitter wars that rage, all the earthquakes, Jesus says, look, this world that you see, in the many good things that you see in this world, we also have bad things. When I return, I'm going to recreate this new world. And then he says, he looks at us and he says, sometimes we fall ill. Sometimes many of us lose loved ones. I have a solution to this. It's called the resurrection. Not only will you live again, you will live forevermore. That's what the historical fact of the resurrection points us to. He makes huge claims. He backs it up with the resurrection, but he then makes a call on us. Thank you very much. <laughs>